I'm Letitia, host of the New Leaf podcast, created for new and working mums everywhere. Over the course of this series, I interview women from a variety of industries to share their journeys of what happened to their professional and personal identities when they had their babies and headed back to work, exploring the good, the bad, and the ugly. The motherhood space can be a scary one, but it doesn't have to be. By interviewing women in all spaces and lines of work and sharing their different experiences, I want to show you that there is no one right way and that we're all kind of winging it. My mission is to revolutionize the way we look at pregnancy, birth and motherhood, taking the judgment, pressure and expectations out and putting the confidence back in so that one day we can all say that it's my motherhood, my choice. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at New Leaf Podcast if you want to continue the conversation with the hashtag MyMotherhoodMyChoice. Before we begin, I've got something extra special. Click the episode details to subscribe to New Leaf Nutshell, my exclusive monthly write-up straight to your phone to break down and summarize some of the most controversial motherhood topics in a nutshell. Right now, I'm settling the breast and bottle debate for anyone who's struggling with breastfeeding, where I've referenced nearly 100 academic articles to give you impartial and well-researched advice with none of the judgment. Doing all the Googling so you don't have to. Right, let's get on with my intro to our next lovely guest. Introducing Kate Jarman, co-founder of Flex NHS, as my third guest for series two. Kate is a mother of three and also manages to squeeze in that small job of Director of Corporate Affairs for Milton Keynes University Hospital in the UK. Flex NHS is a movement championing flexible working and innovative thinking for the 1.5 million people employed by the British National Health Service in the UK as a vital part of recruiting and retaining amazing talent now and in the future. I found Kate in that weird and wonderful world of Twitter, something I'm still pretty new to and also something that has taken me quite a long time to come around to. When flicking through the who to follow while setting up my Twitter account, of course I clicked follow on the NHS and sure enough Kate's tagged tweets kept popping up over and over again. Her propensity to drop some major truth bombs, her humour and undeniable sharpness, which, by the way, you can hear by the sheer speed at which she talks, was undeniable. This is someone who really, really, really is passionate about what they do, which, of course, for me, was an instant ding, ding, ding moment for me to have her on as a guest. I love people who absolutely love what they do, and it is so obvious that Kate is in her absolute element. In the episode, we discuss a huge range of things. Of course, we talk about Flex NHS, why it exists, and its own brilliant birth story. We explore why flexible working should be the default and not the exception, whether you are a parent or not. We also talked a great deal about the importance of the female network, the women who make up the giant and often invisible web of support for the millions of families trying to head back to normality after a baby whether it's the nursery assistants, the au pairs, the childminders and nannies, primary and secondary school teachers, who as a vast majority are female-dominated professions, without which our economy and country would simply grind to a halt. It upset me to hear in the beginning of the episode that some of the hardest tweets Kate had to deal with were for the apparent crime of pointing out that the overwhelming majority of our key workers in these care and health professions are women. For me, it speaks volumes as to how far we still have to go in maintaining positive dialogue between the genders to ensure that merely pointing out that women exist isn't seen as something that is apparently provocative. And since being on Twitter myself, it is easy to see that sadly some of these attitudes are alive and well. Kate and I discuss in detail the format of Twitter and how structurally it can be a pretty divisive medium. This week, in the context of International Women's Day, it is all the more pertinent to me, from the deniers of Meghan's depression to some fairly horrendous misogynistic tweets from a very well-known fast food company to the exit of Piers Morgan from Good Morning Britain. We are in a period of polarity. Covid has of course shoved us all forward to face the realities of remote working, both hindering and advancing female progress. 
hindering with the overwhelming burden of homeschooling and housework still falling on women, yet advancing with the millions of dads who realise that perhaps that one hour commute into the office isn't quite so worthwhile, and who are now sharing and loving domestic life. Kate did the back-to-work cycle three times, and her wisdom on the topic is fascinating. As currently just a mum of one myself, I only have to juggle one childcare schedule, so the thought of juggling three and holding down a senior job was frankly obvious, but also intimidating. Speaking to Kate brought home to me personally the absurdity of a school day that finishes at 3.15 with a work day that finishes at 5, where company annual leave is totally unaligned to school holidays. This is not beyond the realm of possible to resolve or rethink. In Sweden, nurseries and workplaces close at the same time. There, and in France, August is a month off to give families a chance to spend time together and go on holiday. In Slovenia, all school holidays align with work ones. Just because these things are undeniably hard does not mean that they are not worth pursuing and exploring. Covid has brought some amazing innovations and ideas forward. The fact that the Education Secretary in the UK is considering longer school days, at least temporarily, to help catch up the millions of children held back by Covid, shows that this is indeed possible. I saw Claire Balding, a British journalist at a Sunday Times Women in Business conference way back in 2018, who pointed out that we are in an obesity crisis amongst our children, with the UK being the most obese nation in the whole of Europe, and that perhaps two hours of sport or physical activity or games after formal lessons could build self-esteem and be a possible solution to both this obesity crisis, as well as the crisis of women being held back from participating fully in their full working day by, frankly, structural sexism. There are many answers to the tricky question of how we can get women back to doing what they love and reclaiming their personal identities, but more than ever, it is clear to me that we need a radical overhaul of our working practices to make the motherhood tax no longer the accepted norm, and to make the phrase, she chose not to go back to work, as a euphemism for, actually, we can't afford for her to go back, obsolete and to support families as a whole, dads included, to have happy and well-cared-for children, but with happy and well-cared-for parents too. Okay, speech over. That was a long intro. (laughs) Time for my next brilliant guest. Introducing the brilliant Kate Jarman. So welcome, Kate. (laughs) Hello. Okay, so I'll just start by describing how we know each other. So this is the wonderful world of Twitter, which I have only recently just joined. So I think I think that's how we know each other, really, isn't it? That is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Twitter is a wonderful <laughs> place for making these connections. <laughs> it's really strange, but I feel slightly middle-aged about Twitter. I still just don't really get it, I have to say. It's a funny platform, I think, isn't it? I find it a mixture of a great network and an interesting way to find your tribe of people who are looking at things, talking about things that resonate with you. But also it can be a difficult platform. And I've certainly had experiences on Twitter that I wouldn't want to keep having. And I think there's a group of people who share quite honestly on Twitter about all sorts of things in the NHS and outside. And I've got a group of people I follow who are going through similar things around working parenthood and doing that kind of juggling, struggling around work and life, etc. I like that, juggling, struggling. What sort of things do people say when you've had bad experiences? So my first taste of having a bad experience on Twitter was in the first wave of the COVID pandemic, we filmed a documentary here with Ross Kemp and it was tremendously moving. We had lots of really positive feedback about it. But before it was aired, it really hit a nerve on Twitter about giving a journalistic team access into a hospital in the way that we did. And other journalists were doing it in other places, but because Ross is a particular, you know, kind of documentary maker and has a background as a soap actor, he was seen differently. And it was a weekend of really personal abuse on Twitter, actually, from strangers. <laughs> that was quite an experience. And and then more recently, I'd tweeted something about key workers and the sort of gender split of key workers, the majority women. And I perhaps phrased it in a way that was a little bit provocative. And you'll notice that I phrased that quite carefully. I perhaps phrased it <laughs> very, di- very <laughs> diplomatic um, and I got quite a bit of stick for that as well so much so that I took the post down but slightly bitterly because it was a point I wanted to make but yeah what was the point you wanted to make so uh, through flex we do quite a bit of crossover work with gender equality and gender inequality and actually when you look at key worker workforces in health and in care and in education they are majority women so early years education it's 92 percent women in the workforce 
teaching, it's around 75%, carers, 80%, the NHS, 77%. And it really fascinates me that there's this network of completely interdependent sectors staffed by women in the main. But I made the point that key workers are women, but it was felt to be a bit exclusionary around men. There's quite a lot of whataboutery, but what about men in that conversation? And it was like, okay, but what about women? (laughs) Um, Because actually, they're often also careers or jobs that are low paid, that don't have a great amount of security. And also, we know that women through the pandemic have been economically and socially impacted disproportionately when compared to men. So yeah, felt like an interesting thing to explore, possibly handled it slightly provocatively. (laughs) I mean, to find provocative, if it's true, the truth is sometimes provocative. So there's a group of quite high profile on Twitter, I suppose, doctors who are outspoken, vocal, real role models, actually, because they talk about difficult things. They're willing to make themselves vulnerable in a variety of different ways. And we talk a lot in the NHS about speaking up. And actually, we talk a lot about being true to yourself. And sometimes we can make mistakes in doing that. And sometimes that's difficult, as you say. Sometimes that's being provocative and that is stimulating debate. But um, Twitter is quite binary, I think, in its response to things often. It's either you know, good or it's bad, and there's not a lot of room for nuance. So there we are. You summarised it so well. And I think being a new person to Twitter, it's strange because I, my husband's like completely obsessed with Twitter. And um, I was saying, what do I say? Like, I feel like I'm really putting my opinion out there by saying this. And he was like, well, yeah, that's what it is. That's what you do. And when you look through the comments on things that people have written that you think are relatively innocuous and people do not hold back, they no. just go for it. And you think, oh my goodness, dude, your name is like on a public platform as if people could see who you are and they just don't seem to care at all. Just, know, they just go for it. Isn't it. Yeah, it's really interesting. It's interesting how it seems to strip away people's reservations about their kind of conduct, really, I suppose. Is that the medium? Because it allows that to happen. There's something about the anonymity of it, but it's not that anonymous. I got some really quite strong comments from someone who's a primary school teacher, and I did nothing about it. But obviously, most people that are on Twitter in a professional capacity have a disclaimer that says, this does not represent my organisation's views. But it's quite hard to disassociate yourself from your organisational identity when you're on there in a sort of named way. It's a whole other topic to explore, isn't it? It is, it is, but it's like road rage. People just feel that from the safety of their own car, they can just abuse people out the window. There was on LinkedIn, of all places, some post had gone viral about this young woman. I think she was 18 or 19, very young. And she'd been one of the rising stars in NASA and she was desperate to go to Mars. And she completed all these incredible programs, whatever. And somebody had just said, what an amazing achievement. What an extraordinary young woman. Let's celebrate this and be happy about it. Some of the comments, all from blokes, just saying fake news is completely made up. Rubbish. <laughs> I was like, this is not rubbish. And then I thought, oh, maybe I've been really taken in. Maybe it is fake news. Maybe it is. And then I, I did a bit of Googling. It's not fake news at all. This is completely legit. And the number of blokes that just started yeah. weighing in. And it was just like, you really have nothing better to do. This is really sad that this is threatening to you, that a, a young woman is doing well, essentially. I think you're so right. It's so exposing social media. You can live quite happily in your own sort of bubble. But I think it's very exposing of those sort of persistent stereotypes. And actually, misogyny being one of them, but not the, obviously not the only one, they really are platforms that seem to be rife with that. And I think it's probably just because exactly like, as you said, it's when you're in your own car, you're in your own little world. And I think people posting on social media, it probably feels the same. It feels like it's quite an intimate, personal world, but but it isn't. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> And, it's, uh, and so I think you probably express things, perhaps, that perhaps you wouldn't in a pub or in your front room, Although, or perhaps you would. I don't know. It's, yeah, it depends on the pub. It does depend on the pub, yeah. <laughs> it, it raises a really interesting question, doesn't it? Exactly. I, I think the nuance and the discussion is really important because actually, if you're just telling people they're wrong without any context, people become entrenched, don't they, in their own positions. And it it just pushes people further apart. So I think that is the danger of social media, where you don't have conversation. You simply have someone putting out an opinion and other people either throwing stones at it or agreeing vigorously with it. And I think that's it's dangerous for public discourse. And actually, politics should be wary, particularly of, of trying to follow that way of working, because the nuance, the context, the difference is really important. And we can't forget, we shouldn't forget that. And otherwise, it's quite exclusionary, isn't it? If you happen to be on a particular forum, you get to be involved in these discussions or not. 
and I'm sure we'll come on to talk about it, but the whole social media and its role around perpetuating some unhelpful myths around motherhood and working motherhood and and unhelpful standards, etc., is is definitely something to be concerned it's about. Yeah, it is. It's a fascinating space. So this is why I feel like sometimes I just need to go for a glass of wine with people before I interview them because then <laughs> this is what happens. We've solved the world's problems now, Kate. So now good, good, good. Yeah. We'll start with what I usually ask people, which is where are you in the world right now and what can you see in front of you? So at the moment, I am in Milton Keynes Hospital. I'm sitting at my desk and I'm looking out of my window to see the pouring rain <laughs> over the oh, hospital building in front of me. And tell me about your immediate family unit. So who's in it? Husband, Howell, and we have three children and I have two stepchildren too. So they're kind of grown up adults now in their, in their mid-20s and early 30s. So five kids in all, but obviously a huge mixture of ages from 31 through to five. <laughs> So, oh my God. Yeah, so spanning lots of years. Poor Hal, he's never had a break from parenthood. He was a very young dad and then he was an older dad. So he's he's been full on parenting mode for most of his life. How, how old are your other two? So, yep, another son who is eight and a daughter who's uh, 10, nearly 11. So she'll be starting senior school this year. So big transition in our household with that happening. And it feels like, wow, you know, where did that decade and a bit go? <laughs> Just cause it doesn't feel like that. <laughs> I, I can imagine. What's that thing they always say? The days are long, but the years are short. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Would you say that's true? No, I think it really is true. And it was a saying that really annoyed me when I first became a mother and was like, why are you saying so this? Annoying that things. Are really annoying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I remember feeling like really just so tired and the days felt never ending and people would say things exactly like that. And I'd be like, shut up. <laughs> You've no idea what my days are like. <laughs> But no, I do look back and think, yeah, it does feel like it goes really fast. And, and it does feel like once kids kind of get into primary school, it, it seems to move really fast at that point. The school years tick by really quickly. And my daughter's getting to that sort of tweedy type stage. And you think, wow, she's, you know, really wanting to strike out on her own. And suddenly you're less, less important. And yeah, it's really, it's fascinating. Yeah. I might cry during this podcast now. I think. Oh, oh, that's fine. <laughs> this is just what happens. I don't know why. It, it's just clearly the sad effects I have on people. I can imagine that 10, 11 phase. I'm woefully ignorant about that age group other than the fact that I was once that age. I have no other <laughs> frame of reference. But I do remember that it's quite odd because you're not really a full-on child anymore. You're sort of entering that slightly more independent phase and you've got your own opinions and you're perfectly able to express yourself. It's just that hormones haven't yet kicked in. I remember my husband saying it is the golden age of childhood because they haven't got to the bit where they really hate you and they're a sort of teenage, <laughs> like you're just like so boring and dull. They really want to be around you still, but they're independent and they can do things and you can have great conversations with them and they are interested but independent enough to do stuff alongside you rather than you doing it for them all. So I think it, it, it is a really special age and she's in year six at school. And I remember looking at her friends and they started the year as sort of little girls and they ended the year as a real kind of pre-teen. They just looked that much older and behaved that much older. And I thought, wow, it's just a real time of change. <laughs> so tell me, what did you do pre-children? So obviously you had two stepchildren for a while. Or tell me about that whole origin. So I was about 26 when I got together with Hal. And, and obviously he had two children and they were 18 and about 13 at that time. So I kind of knew what sort of step-parent I wanted to be which was just there as a kind of helpful person <laughs> as <Yeah>. needed <laughs> they've got two brilliant parents and they don't need any more parental input they've got a great mum and a great dad who who absolutely fulfill that role and, and obviously when they were younger there's a bit more to do in terms of practical stuff but they weren't that young so it was my job is to not get in the way of their relationship with their parents I think that's how I saw step parenting for me that was my kind of approach to it so you were 26 and where were you working at that time? What were you doing? So that time I was working for the police and I was working as a, in a sort of press office type role. So I was doing media management and comms at that point. And I left to join the NHS in about 2007 when I was about 27. And then I had my first child when I was 29. So looking back, it feels like quite young now. I don't know. It's not really I think you're right. And the people in my NCT group, I think the youngest people there were 29, one of, one of them being me. And I think it's just different these days. 
So you joined the NHS a couple of years before, is that right? A couple of years before, yeah. So I joined Bedford Hospital in 2007 and yeah, went on, went on mat leave in 2010, yeah. And have you always been in like press, public affairs type role? Is that something that you always wanted to do yes. or were you surprised to end up there? Yeah, I got into press and public relations like lots of people do, I think, probably wanting to do journalism because it pays better. And so there was more opportunity, really. It was an opportunity I took, I think, at the time and, and loved it and loved working for the police, but really enjoyed the job and the sense of being an important part of public service. And that, I think, was what attracted me to the NHS job. I then took that sort of thread of kind of social justice and public service. And you have to forgive my ignorance because I've obviously never worked in that space before. But of course, you're representing the NHS or you're representing the hospital or the police when you started out. And obviously, sometimes there must be incidences where the hospital is maybe at fault or the police are at fault and you're having to manage a situation quite delicately. Have you ever found that quite challenging from a personal ethics point of view to be like, oh, I have to present the good side of this story, but we all know that it's not quite right? Or how, how do you deal with that? Yeah, so I've got a strong view on this, actually, that it's so particularly in the NHS, part of my job is working in clinical governance and looking at, for example, with incidents where people are harmed. And that happens. And I, and I think the most important thing we can do and be in those moments is honest. The NHS has a legal duty of candor to people who've been harmed, but actually it's more than that. It is a moral duty to say things shouldn't have happened for a variety of different reasons. And I don't think you should be in a position where your personal sort of moral compass is pushed in a direction that you can't find tolerable by your organisation. If that happens, you're in the wrong job because you shouldn't be asked to defend things that are indefensible, actually, is my view. And the people that matter are the people that you're delivering a service to. And your reputation is built on the hundreds of thousands of transactions that take place in that space every year. And those are all dependent on other human beings. I think there's a certain amount of inevitability about it, though, isn't it? It was such a massive organization where you can't get everything to be completely flawless all the time. And there's lots in the NHS about recognizing that human factors are always you know, at play. And there's things that you can do to design systems and processes that help and, and most importantly, cultures that help ensure that those things are much less likely to happen. Those things that cause harm are much less likely to happen. So had a baby at 29, but had been working in the public affairs space for a wee while. And did you find that sort of having a baby change how you approached work? Obviously, you're now heading up Flex NHS and we're going to get onto this because this is the really exciting bit. But I'd love to know that journey of how you became a mum and then got to where you are now. So I think becoming a mum changes you enormously, doesn't it? I think for me, the first thing it changed when I went back to work is that I was completely time bound in a way that I'd never been before. So I could only get to work at a set time because that was after I dropped off at nursery and I could only drop off at nursery at this time because that's the time that nursery opened. And I had to pick up my daughter from nursery at six because that's the time that nursery shut. So she went for the whole day. Suddenly I had just absolutely no freedom in my working day. I couldn't just stay late to finish something. I couldn't arrive early just to get something done before a meeting. I could do it at home, but 10 years ago, that was much more unusual than it is now. And so I remember going back to work and I said, my, my chief executive I'd worked for, she came to see me when I was on maternity leave to say that she was leaving for a new job in another hospital. And I was devastated. <laughs> so, no, don't go. Because um, she'd been a huge support to me and a great boss to work for. And so the interim chief executive I knew because it was the chief operate, operating officer. I remember going in to see her and I was saying, look, I think I'm, I'm going to do this working pattern when I come back from maternity leave. I'm going to do three days a week. And I'm going to do a bit of working at home. And she was like, that's fine. And she said to me, as I left the office, she said, look, don't get too hung up on your exact working pattern. Just see how it goes, because you might find it doesn't work. And that's all right. And I've never forgotten her saying that because she was absolutely right. <laughs> and the working pattern that I decided on, which was Monday, Wednesday, Friday in the office, just didn't work at all. It was a nightmare. It was really start-stop. It was really clunky. You couldn't ever start anything at work because then you were off the next day. And it was just, there was no continuity. It felt really, it just felt all wrong. So I tried variations of that over time and eventually settled on doing the three days together. And then a permanent chief exec was appointed. And, and I was really nervous about that because as we know, with flexible working and working patterns, your boss is really important. And their approach to flexibility at work and working parenthood is really important. So he joined and I remember reading his biography and it said he was the dad of 18-month-old twins. And I was like, 
yes that sounds really good because <laughs> I had a nine-month-old daughter by that stage and he had 18-month-old twins I was like I said he'll get it and he did and I'm still working for him now <laughs> I'm not sure what I would have done if I'd had a boss that didn't actually because I know that they certainly exist so he was the really supportive boss. I, I got pregnant with my second child, went off on maternity leave, and he left. <laughs> and I was oh like, no. God. Vividly remember found becoming a mum for the second time really hard because you're suddenly split in two. There's no downtime. It was winter. So he was born in December and I found it really tough. And my daughter was nearly three and was in that kind of really stroppy toddler phase. And I struggled quite a bit, actually. And I don't think you always realise it when you're going through it that you are struggling. And it's only really when I look back on it when he was quite a bit older that I thought that was a tough period. And my husband was working on a kind of consultancy basis and he was working away. So I was at home on my own with the two kids quite a bit. And that was really challenging. Yeah. And so when I went back to work the second time, which was at the same hospital, I came back and almost immediately a huge service issue cropped up in the hospital around a paediatric provision and it's complicated but it ended up in children's services being temporarily suspended at the hospital so there was a huge public outcry and I just I remember going home I was still breastfeeding at night and trying to work and oh it was just it was so difficult it was very unlike my first experience of going back after maternity leave it was just full-on really frenetic there was so much happening at work and again you're totally time-bound I had to be in and out of certain times because of the childcare arrangement that I had then which was by that stage a childbinder because I couldn't afford to put two children into Mm full-time nursery because it was more than I earned and, um, and another conversation yeah another conversation. <laughs> so that was really challenging then the job at Milton Keynes hospital came up which I applied for and was lucky enough to get joined here and and I can't remember how long I'd been here but by the end of my first year was planning my maternity leave with my third child <laughs> so that was unexpected <laughs> and he was a lovely surprise um, but by that time I was kind of like oh, I've yeah. done this twice before this is all fine and hoped that my boss wouldn't again leave <laughs> so I was yeah. okay, came back and he didn't and I took six months off each time and then came back obviously to work here after that but my experience of being a mum the third time round was was totally different. And I don't know if it's just that you're just so used to the sort of sleeplessness and chaos of life generally that it didn't seem any different, really. So you just sort of put it in. Something that you said, though, stuck out to me, which is I remember before I went off on maternity leave, I remember thinking, God, six months is a really long time. And then actually at six months, your babies are still babies. They Tiny babies. Definitely yeah. really small. And again, it's one of those things where before you have a baby, you're like, oh, breastfeed for six months or whatever and then um and then they eat solids and what you don't realize is that milk whether it's formula or boob or whatever that milk is still the predominant component of their diet until they're like one plus yeah Um, and how did you even manage that from a supply point of view from a sleeplessness point of view that that must have been really tough yeah and it's interesting because it was really different each time and after my daughter was born I didn't have strong views on anything to do with birth or anything really to do with feeding. And I didn't make a birth plan at any time. I don't really know why. I think I thought if I set expectations and they weren't met, that I'd be really disappointed and I wouldn't be able to not think about it. So I kind of, I knew I couldn't have a midwife led birth because I had a kidney condition and high blood pressure. So I was always going to be consultant led. I had a really bad tear with my first child. So I still think people don't talk about birth enough and talk about the reality of birth. And perhaps if they did this, people would just stop doing it. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but I remember a few things. So postnatally, I struggled quite a bit because I'd had this really bad tear, this surgery. I was completely paranoid about everything, like going to the toilet, totally paranoid, thinking I would never again be able to go for a poo without crying um, or worrying that everything was going to split open and it was all going to be horrendous and decided I wanted to breastfeed and thought that would be really easy and fine and it really wasn't at all so had the whole kind of cracked bleeding nipples I found it really challenging I was really lucky because I had the same health visitor for each of my kids despite the length of time between having each of them and she was fabulous and she came and spent quite a lot of time then and I again I think about the pandemic now and the fact that women aren't having that support in their homes and think oh my goodness I don't know how I would have coped and eventually got a pattern of breastfeeding started but I do remember vividly the first early weeks of having my daughter and I remember I don't know a few days after giving birth waking up drenched in sweat thinking what's this about and then for nights afterwards just being drenched in sweat and then reading it somewhere on google that it was like oh no that can happen it's just hormonal and I'm like oh my god my whole source of information is google and I remember in the middle of the night just saying to my husband just 
take her away. I can't do this anymore. Just take her away. <laughs> I can't mm-hmm. feed her anymore because she was feeding constantly, doing that cluster feeding that, you know, that they do. And and I think I remember sort of wandering off and then like coming back about 10 minutes later going, yeah, you'll have to feed her again anyway. So over those first few weeks, I got lots of support. I went to the Lecky League and anywhere I could find people that could help show me what to do. I went to them. I went to every mother and baby group and everywhere, everything that was available, I went to. So got to six months, as you said, and managed to do that thing where you do weaning off feeds and weaning onto a bottle. And so I ended up just breastfeeding my daughter at night and I was able to do that because I'd made those sort of changes over time. When I had my middle child, the breastfeeding that time around was much, much easier. I didn't have all the problems that I had the first time around. I was able to establish breastfeeding really quickly and he fed really well. But I got to five months, thought I need to start getting him onto formula so that I can do the same thing I did last time so that I can go back to work. And it just wouldn't work. And I couldn't express. I never got into expressing. I just found it really difficult and couldn't do it. And so I gave up on it quite quickly after spending about £400 on an expressing machine. <laughs> So expensive. And I remember taking him to the childminders and just crying in the car because he wouldn't take this bottle. And eventually I found the only bottle after buying every kind of bottle tea available in boots. I found those really like yellowy latex 99p teats um, bottles and he finally took it. And it was such a huge relief. But then I kept feeding him for until I got pregnant again, actually. Breastfeeding was clearly excellent contraception. Yeah, it really works well. Yeah. <laughs> um, a source of so many surprises. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. So I think that, if, again, like the breastfeeding, one thing I will say, but what I found, which I wasn't expecting, was I, I had really quite severe OCD as a teenager. And when I had my first child, it really flared up postnatally in a way that I hadn't expected at all. And I never spoke about it to the health visitors. I never spoke about my OCD at that point at all anyway. And so just didn't say anything at all. But it, but it manifested when I tried to do the sterilising of bottles and the sterilising of food equipment to try and wean her onto firstly bottles and then food. And I found it really hard to cope with because I couldn't get things clean enough. And I was really paranoid about it. And that hugely put me off bottle feeding because I would sterilise things repeatedly, like just over and I'd boil them, then steam sterilise them, then microwave sterilise them. And it was just like a never ending and so that must have gone on for sort of a, a number of months and then it eased off again. And I, I didn't pay it much attention until quite a number of years later when I looked back on it and thought, I can't, I, I can't believe I never, I never said anything about that at the time, that I didn't ask for any help. I didn't mention it to anybody. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think anything that you're predisposed to tends to pop up after you've had a baby because it's just such a mental time and you're spending so much time by yourself in your own thoughts in your own head yes exactly Um, yeah it is very tricky but I think I I don't like to say breast versus bottle because I think we've got to like change some of the language around it so that it's not versus but there's a huge element to it that people just don't really talk about but ultimately the beauty of motherhood is that there is no handbook and actually it has to be what works for you yeah uh, no you're so right you're absolutely right for me I, that was another twitter experience i had a few months ago now i put something i put something on saying in a few years by the time your child is 5 you won't remember breast breastfeeding or bottle feeding won't be something that you remember and yeah. there were so many replies about things like breastfeeding grief and trauma so i, I suppose i realized a few things one you know that is your own experience is just that and you can't extrapolate it out to anybody else because a lot of motherhood is like that, isn't it? You make these you know, internal judgments and justifying your own decisions because it helps you to stay sane. I <laughs> yeah. and, and also the counter to that is that people make their own judgments about whether what you're doing is right or wrong. And that's really hard. But it's become an area where women feel so judged and traumatised in the, in the examples that these women were given that they couldn't breastfeed. And it's like going back through history, where if you couldn't feed a baby, actually the risk of your baby dying was enormous unless you could find someone who could, because there weren't any alternatives, where now we've got alternatives that are safe. But actually that feeling of failure and judgment and grief and trauma that these women were describing is still really profound. And I hadn't even even considered that level of grief and trauma for other women who'd experienced that. And, I, and it really made me think. I bought a book that someone recommended on that Twitter thread about the sort of grief and trauma associated with feeding and how women can be supported differently to help um, um, alleviate that and to help avoid it in the first place by different types of support systems and information and um, things. Yeah. So, yeah. 
the Royal College of Midwives updated their advice in 2018, I think it was, just to say that it's our job to basically improve postnatal services improve the support that we give women after they've had a baby to provide them with as much information as they need and want to make the best possible decision that they want to in terms of feeding their child. So by the time you got round to your third then, how was that experience in terms of feeding? <laughs> you must have got it down by then. So it felt like he just slotted in. So I think that my first child, it was very much that kind of every experience is new. Everything you do is new and terrifying and exhilarating in equal measure. The second was I know what I'm doing and I'm doing it again. And I know what I didn't enjoy the first time and what I want to do again this time. And and I had more of an idea going into birth of what I didn't want. So I had pethid in my first labour and I didn't want that again because it just made me feel really woozy and horrid. So I had uh, what was billed as the alternative to pethidin, which was miptid. I had really fast labours with all my kids, so I had a five-hour sort of labour with my first and then four hours Your with first? my second. Sorry. Yeah. She was huge. She was nine, nine pounds nine, so she was like a giant baby. That's why I got such a, a tear. <laughs> I think, a nine hard. pounds nine and a yeah. five-hour. Yeah. I'm so confused. But yeah. Not lucky with a tear. That is terrible. No, that was horrible. So I remember going into Tesco's and then I was like, oh, I think something's happening. And then that was about three o'clock. And by 8.40 that evening, she was, she'd arrived. And then my second, I had an obstetric hemorrhage with him. So that was very dramatic. And my husband has been quite scarred by this, quite generally. I say it laughingly, but he has been quite scarred by it, I think, because it was a proper kind of crash bleep. There's blood everywhere and we can't stop it. And obviously I had no idea, but he said a baby, he'd been delivered and was absolutely fine and you know, gone off to be weighed or whatever it is they do. And I was just, yeah, just kind of hemorrhaging <laughs> next to him. So I can't remember it really, but he talks about it quite a bit. And it was just from a tear, so it kind of sewed it up and it was fine. But my third baby, my waters hadn't broken before. So my daughter was born in her waters. In my second, my waters broke whilst I was in labour. It just all, you know, went everywhere. But in my third, it, my, labor, my waters broke at home and I was sitting, just eating dinner. And... Um, <laughs> and <laughs> Suddenly they were just popped, and it's such a weird sensation. But then I went to the loo and saw my waters are broken and they're greenish, so I knew that something wasn't right. And so I was like, get in the car and off we go. And because like, my previous labours have been quite fast, I was like, just let's just go, yeah, let's just go, go now. <laughs> and and he was born about an hour and a half later. But but I got into the hospital and I was like, there's something the matter. I need a, I need a cesarean. I need a cesarean. And and I need one right now. And the doctor was like, well, you've only just arrived. So let's have a look at what's going on. And, um, and I was like massively histrionic. And my husband was apologising. But I was like, don't apologise for me. <laughs> so it was like a proper kind of <laughs> row as well. And, um, <laughs> and If you're in labour, though, you are always right. Yeah, always absolutely. Right. So every single labour I had, I wanted an epidural because I, as soon as the pain started, I was like, oh, my God, this is the worst pain I've ever felt <laughs> in my life. This is horrendous. And no breathing exercise will help with this. And every single time I was either too early or too late in the window of asking for an epidural. And I've since learned that's a bit of a myth that actually you can have one at any point, but clearly it's a persistent myth. So I said, I, I want an epidural after not getting a section. And then he was born. So I, I mean, I, an hour and a half, that's, that's no, it take, sometimes it takes him 20 minutes to bring you a cup of tea. I think well, <laughs> <yeah>. I mean, <laughs> uh, my expectations <laughs> are high. Crazy. So it was by far the easiest birth and the most enjoyable. And actually, he was a very easy baby in that he just seemed to slot in and be very easy. The most traumatic thing, actually, about going back to work was that we had a childminder who had all of them, the school age, school and preschool ages, did this kind of drop off and pick up and just had them for a couple of hours either side. And obviously had the youngest all days. But then she decided to retire. And I was devastated. And there wasn't any other sort of childminder type options. So I asked if she'd consider being our nanny. She also lived next door, like her garden backed onto our garden. And it was the only economically viable option anyway to have someone because otherwise it would have been before and after school wraparound care, nursery, and it would have just been logistically impossible. So she's been then the kids nanny. She still does before and after school kind of pick up and, and drop off, even though and I'm not quite entirely sure how I would have managed without her in all sorts of different ways. And actually, I don't think I'd ever appreciated this like big invisible network of women supporting other women, <laughs> enabling them to go and work or care for other people. 
And they're all women that are also on the school governing committee and are running charities and are looking after people in their village. But it's, you know, actually the vast majority of this is women supporting other women to do this work. And and they don't do it for that kind of to be publicly praised. But goodness me, they should be because they are... just phenomenal and um, well, they're just the fabric of the community aren't they, they really are yeah no so my childminder I remember she was a registered childminder she had set up the preschool and ran it as a charity and she did everything she did before and after school clubs she had three kids of her own and it's oh my god you're like they are like they're proper, yeah they're proper hidden super women actually that are just incredible more selfless than I could you know ever hope to be I think I just think there's a huge amount in just becoming a mum full stop or interacting in that environment where I think after you've had them, I think because you just understand the struggle so well. I personally found I just took way more of an interest after I'd had a baby of my own in helping other people out because you just think, oh my God, you need to go and have a bath or you need to go and leave the house. So I'm coming and I'm helping and like you go or you go and have a nap. Whereas I think in the past, I just didn't really... I just didn't get it. I just didn't get it in the same way. I think you're absolutely right. I've done things like I ran the mum and toddlers group and stood in as a rainbows and brownies leader. <laughs> because, because for exactly those reasons, you think that if I don't do it and, and I don't put a bit back into the community, I've taken a lot out of in, in the same levels of support of women at different times in their lives. So then actually, who, do, who does do it? Because no one's got loads of time, actually. And people will say to me, well, have you got the time to do that? And I think I just... No one's got loads of time. No one's got a surplus of time just with nothing to do. So you just have to try and make it, don't you? You just have to try and make it in order to be able to to do those things. If you want something done, ask a busy person. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Okay. So then how on earth did Flex NHS come about? Because this must have been born out of your own experience of trying to get back to work and figure out where on earth you fitted in. Yeah, that's right. So Flex and just started, so it was over Twitter and I met Asha Cowie, who's the other co-founder of Flex NHS and didn't know Asha in real life. Chatted with her over tweets because we were both blogging a bit about being a sort of working parent and stuff. And she'd had a particularly difficult time going back to work post-maternity leave. And we talked about like, how do we change these conversations and how do we get more equity? But quickly became just about peopling rather than parenting, just about being a human being. And we said, oh, shall we start a platform where people can talk about this? And that's how Flex NHS started. And so we put the platform together on Twitter and we mirrored it on Instagram. And we quite quickly teamed up with, first of all, we got some great advice from Christine Armstrong, who wrote a fabulous book called The Mother of All Jobs and is a brilliant entrepreneur and writer. And She'd written about flexible working and when we joined Instagram, we followed a network of people that were were doing campaigning work in that area. And we teamed up quite quickly with Anna Whitehouse and her husband, uh, Farquharson, who are mother and a papa pucker. And they were doing a and they were doing a flex flex appeal campaign at that point. They've moved it into flex for all now. And Anna Matt with kind of no expectation whatsoever, gave us their time and supported us with launching Flex NHS on Instagram and coming and doing talks with us. And they've been phenomenal supporters. It was just a random email to Anna saying, oh, we love what you're doing and we're doing this and any kind of tips you can give us. And and she just said, yeah, absolutely, I'll help. And she's got a huge following and huge influence. And she helped us with a launch tweet, a post on Instagram she came and did talks for us and so did Matt at uh, various different events. Yeah, so it's just, it was just a sort of offer of help. She just said, yeah, I'm in. I'll, you know, be a partner to you, you and your campaign. And she's been amazing. So generous and so... So generous. Yeah, really is. And so the sort of platform grew and people, we asked people to share their personal stories and to try and get conversations going about the barriers around flexibility at work, and particularly in the NHS. And particularly because the NHS, one, it's the biggest employer in the country but two it employs you know, a hugely diverse group of professions and roles and people at different ages and stages in their careers etc and I talked a lot in senior circles and particularly had some brilliant senior women mentoring me and talking about their own experiences and really paving the way for this kind of work and hearing those conversations from senior people men and women in the NHS was really inspiring and my thought was how do we bring this to everybody how do we get it so that these aren't just conversations that you can have when you're senior and you've got power and influence and agency how do we get them so that they're conversations that you can have with a meaningful outcome and change in your working life when you're just starting out in your career it has to be it has to be everywhere it has to be stuff that is accessible to everybody 
And that was the premise of Flex. It was like, how do we do this? Every profession, every grade, how do we make this a reality? And we've teamed up with people all over the place. So organisations like the BMA, the Doctors' Union, NHS England. So there's a, a huge, and you're right, the word is very generous community of people out there, campaigners and business owners and people working in public service who are passionate about this. And that collectively, we are a really powerful group, I think, and make, can make really meaningful change. So that's how it started. What a journey. And it hasn't been going that long, has it? It's like a year and a half, no, is that right? Yeah, about a year and a half. No, so it's been inc- incredible. And we were making lots of um, strides toward this default and ability to ask for flexible working from day one. Now, obviously, the pandemic has changed the world of work phenomenally. And I talked a bit about this the other day at a session on homeschooling. But I think what we shouldn't confuse the current working arrangements that we have, so people remote working all the time with flexible working, because it's not, because we all know that actually working at home, well, working at home when you're homeschooling kids isn't flexible working. It's doing three jobs in one. And that remote working can be just as intrusive and in some ways more intrusive on your life outside of work than working in an office or working at a base because there's no ability to switch off unless you're really strict with yourself. So we're talking a lot now about what's kind of future flex. What does that look like? You know, how do we take the good bits from the pandemic? I'll take my husband as an example. You don't have to travel to Brussels for a meeting. You can, um, you know, you can do that over Zoom or over Teams and it's just as productive. So how do you take those good bits where you reduce all sorts of things, cost, carbon footprint, but get rid of the the more negative aspects of it, like social isolation? We end up talking a lot about flexibility in the context of parenting. But I remember a friend of mine at work saying to me, you think your time is more important than mine because you've got kids. Um, And it was in the context of taking um, annual leave around Christmas, I think. And she's a really good friend. So she's able to say it without without me being offended. And then I went away and thought about it and thought, you know what, I think you're right. I think I make subconscious judgments um, about your time in a way that I don't expect you to do about mine. And it was a real quite difficult moment of insight for me, thinking I I don't really want to think that that about myself. But it was a really important point that actually, if we start from the premise that everyone's time is of equal value and that the reasons that you want to work flexibly, there doesn't need to be a moral kind of judgment laid upon those reasons. So you don't have to go in and say, I really want to do this because I've got to do this because of my kids. If you start to say, actually, flexibility is the norm and you just say, I'd like to work a shorter day today or I'd like to work this pattern, please, because I've tested it through with the team and it works for them and it will work for me in the following ways. But we don't have to present a moral case for working flexibly that's either tied to our children or to our health condition or our caring responsibilities. Then then we start to be able to reduce some of the emotion that's attached to flexible working as a conversation. And, mm. and actually, if you've got a health condition, if you're going through menopause, and that's a huge conversation for the NHS because our workforce demographic, with majority women and a huge number of those women will go through menopause. And there's a huge reluctance to talk about menopause at work. We know menopause affects people in their overall health, their, their environment of work, and their ability to be productive at certain times of the day, perhaps. But actually, if you're you know, a woman going through menopause and you've got a, a young male manager, I know this is very, very stereotypy, but maybe you don't feel comfortable talking to that person or a young woman. So one way of tackling that is to say, I'd, I'd like to work flexibly, but without having to give a reason, without having to give mm. a backstory. The other way, of course, is equipping managers with the tools that they need to be emotionally intelligent and to be able to have conversations in a way that is supportive. Because actually, it's so damaging if you have a, a rubbish conversation with somebody, if you don't handle it well that can be incredibly damaging for them. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and do you find that since launching this, obviously the NHS is just such a huge beast to tackle. And particularly when I first started looking into Flex NHS, and we talked about this on the phone, and I said, my sister-in-law is a surgeon and she has three kids and she had her first week back from her third mat leave this week. And obviously we are in unprecedented circumstances. And she said she worked in a 103 hour week. Oh my goodness. Um, but it's one of those funny things where you think, God, this is a big thing to tackle. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. And do you ever get intimidated by the sort of scale of that challenge? Not necessarily intimidated, but just very aware that in the NHS, because there are so many subcultures either tied to professions or specialties within professions, there are such a lot of people that need to be involved in this conversation. 
So exactly as you've just described, so surgery is, you know, a fascinating area. Just culturally and, and all the different subspecialties in, in surgery will have their own particular cultures and climates around working and working practices. And they'll be different in each hospital you go to and which team you work in. So it's like, how do we engage people? How do we get into the conversations that are actually going to reach into those different areas? How do I reach into a theatre in a hospital 100 miles away and get people having conversations around flexible working? Well, because I know that there'll be people in there that, that are interested and want to have them. There are royal colleges, there are unions that staff will have a touch point with. Uh, and people have grown up through generations of, well, we've always done it this way. It's been on the junior doctor conversation, but never did me any homework in a 120 hour week. And, um, you know, <laughs> but actually it, it may well have done. How do you reset cultural expectations? So it's a huge challenge, I think. And also in the NHS, we can, we have got the luxury of being able to look at people over a career that might span 50 years because actually we want people to join as doctors and nurses you know and other professionals and we want them to join out of university we want to keep them till they retire and that might be now a long period of time in which they will change several times over as human beings because of the things that they'll go through in life whether it's you know becoming a parent or whether it's losing a parent they will change but we can't take time from them without being willing to give it back, is my view. Time is, a, time is a gift and we can't just ask for it all the time without being willing to give it back. We're running out of time, uh, so I'm just going to ask one more question before you go. When you look forward in w- what you want to achieve personally, as, as a mum, but also professionally, what would you want your children to think about what you've done as a mum, but also in what you do for work? So I think... My 10 year sort of 10 years out ambition, I think I'd like to be an MP. And so I think I'd like them to think that I was someone who was committed to making a difference and who made a positive difference and who helped people and that they feel that I've managed to do that whilst being present for them too. It's such a challenge, isn't it? When I start thinking about it, I think, oh my goodness, will they think that on? So I, I hope that they see the value in work and it's being a, an important part of people's lives and identities, an identity that you cannot divorce from yourself outside of work in, in the same way you can't divorce the person you are in your life at home from the person you are in your working environment. Yeah, I hope they, they feel like I've, uh, I've done some good in the world. <laughs> And in their world, and in their world. (laughs) I think there's absolutely no doubt that you have whatsoever. And I think you allow us to finish on such a beautiful note, which is about how important work is to the identity of all of us as humans, but actually as mums especially. And I think it's just really understated and underrepresented sometimes just the mental health impact it has of not being able to return to your work in the same way that you did before. And it's about acknowledging that, embracing it, but also challenging it sometimes as well. And I think Flex NHS is just such a stellar example of an organization that is trying to do that and allow women, but also, of course, other sections of society as well to be able to reclaim that sense of self. Because what we do for eight hours a day is really important, whatever that is. So I just wanted to say a huge thank you. I know that you're very busy and important and have plenty of other more important things than this to be doing. So I wanted to say a huge thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. It's been a a pleasure and a a real privilege to take part. Well, you made it. We've reached the end. Enjoyed it? Drop me a note on Instagram or Twitter at New Leaf Podcast or better yet, do me a quick rating on iTunes. Have a lovely day. And if you're a parent, have an even better night. Bye, everybody.